This is a Rook series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 2. Welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part two, The Americans and the 53 Coup. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled versions with Farsi Zirnevis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We're coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. You can find this program on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Castbox, and Telegram. Here now is the contemporary history of Iran, part two. Where do we turn to to explain the 1953 coup? It is impossible to consider the history of Iran in the last century, the contemporary history of Iran, if you will, without talking about the coup of 1953. It is a pivotal event that, depending on whom you ask, affected the shape of Iran in the decades since, or in fact, the geopolitical reality of the entire world in the second half of the 20th century and beyond. And there are many angles in which we want to address this event that still have reverberations across Iran and the diaspora. Today, we want to look specifically at the American role and Americans in mid-20th century Iran. What exactly was the role of the United States in the removal of the popular Prime Minister Mossadegh in August 1953? And what was the American incentive to get involved? And how does that pivotal event affect American action on the foreign stage right up to today? Well, there is perhaps no better person to discuss the role of American policy and intervention in Iran in 1953 than Stephen Kinzer, the man who has written a book exactly about this event called All the Shah's Men, an American Coup and the Roots of Middle East Terror. Stephen is an author, academic, and an award-winning foreign correspondent who has covered more than 50 countries on five continents, including several trips to Iran. He spent more than 20 years working for the New York Times with extended postings in Nicaragua, Germany, and Turkey. His foreign postings placed him at the center of historic events, revolutions, social upheavals, and at times in the line of fire. After leaving the New York Times in 2005, Stephen Kinzer taught journalism, political science, and international relations at Northwestern University and Boston University. He is now a senior fellow at the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University and writes a world affairs column for the Boston Globe. Stephen Kinzer is the author of more than 10 books and has received numerous honorary doctorates. And it is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Kinzer to our program from Boston, Massachusetts today. Hello, sir. Good to be with you. You know, this has given me a, a, a cause to reread uh, All the Shah's Men, which is uh, not only a, a, the textbook, I think, on, on the coup of 53, but I believe it was the first one. I don't think anybody had actually written a book about this until you, right? I'll tell you the story that led to all of this. So I was sent to Iran by the New York Times when I was the bureau chief in Istanbul, and Iran was not part of my beat. I had to study other countries that I was covering, but suddenly there was some problem. Somebody else couldn't get a visa. I had to go to Iran. Uh, and I couldn't help but be struck as soon as I got there 
by one enormous contradiction, and that was the contradiction between what Iran should be and what Iran is. Based on Iran's culture and its fantastic 25 centuries of history and its influence, not to mention its size and its location and its highly educated population, Iran should logically be one of the leading nations, but it's not. In fact, it's something quite different. It's isolated, it's poor, it's unhappy. So this contrast just jumps out at you. And when I was there for the first time back in the 1990s, I remember asking people, well, what happened? Why wasn't Iran able to evolve into a democracy like other countries? And Iranians are very polite, and they don't like to insult or embarrass people, so they didn't give me a direct answer until one guy finally did break down. And he said to me, we had a democracy here until you took it away from us. Hmm. So that was pretty sobering for me as an American uh, who doesn't think of the United States as taking away democracies. Uh, and I resolved that when I got home, I would like to look up a book about what I knew he was referring to, which was this 1953 coup, so I could figure out what happened. Imagine my surprise to realize that there had never been a book right. written about this episode. And it reinforces something that's important to understand about how uh, we look at history. Uh, what are the really important events of history? And what are events that aren't so important? Every historian has the right and every reader of history has the right to answer that question for themselves. I have seen enormous histories of the 20th century in multi-volumes that go into great detail about ep certain episodes, but the coup in Iran is something like one line in a footnote. Right. This is the traditional history, history, and this is wrong because the coup in Iran in 1953 had a shattering effect not only on Iran, but on the rest of the world, and not just in the 1950s, but right up until today. Well, that's perfect. That's a perfect segue, because indeed, where I was going to start is saying that whilst I want to get into specifics with you, I want to methodically work through this, uh, I, I wanted to just generally say, I mean, you really see... Uh, the coup of 53 as this pivotal point in everything from American interventionism to the prospects of democracy itself in the Middle East. At least you did when you wrote All the Shah's Men almost 20 years ago. So I'm assuming based on what you just said, you still see things this way, as uh, this, this being the coup as a real turning point. Absolutely. It's set in motion so many processes. And it's a, it's a great exemplar of a uh, principle that I learned in journalism and in writing. Uh, we like to say, as one of our cliches, every story is either happy or sad, depending on where you end it. <laughs> now, when the United States crashed into Iran in 1953, we got the exact perfect result we wanted. We got rid of a guy we didn't like, Mossadegh, and we replaced him with someone, the Shah, who would do whatever we told him. It was the perfect outcome. If only history would have stopped then. Right. But history doesn't stop. It keeps going. And when you violently intervene in the political internal affairs of another country, uh, you're doing something like letting a wheel go at the top of a hill. You can let it go, but you have no control over how it bounces or where it's going to end up. You know, uh, <laughs> I love the metaphors. I, I, I want to, I want to focus on American involvement and, and the U.S. role in, in what happened in '53. But just to get context of who Americans were to Iranians and what what role Americans played in Iran uh, before this time, you've made the case that, say, in the first half of the 20th century. Americans were seen something as as something of a Prince Charming's in Iran. I'm using your words. Americans were beloved. Give us the backdrop of how how Americans were seen and what Americans did in and with Iran before '53. The great uh, factor behind the way Iranians uh, perceived the first Americans they met has to do with Iran's relationship with other foreign countries, particularly with Britain and with Russia. Those countries had been ripping Iran's entrails apart with predatory treaties, wars, exploitations, uh, bribes of their leaders, uh, 
foreign intervention has been a curse in Iran long before the United States intervened in 1953. So uh, the a presence of another foreign power always seemed terrifying in Iran. But when the first Americans arrived there, actually in the late 19th century and then in the early, in, in great numbers in the early part of the 20th century, they did not come at all to sign unequal treaties, to pressure Iranians, to steal resources, to exploit anything that Iran had. They were mainly Protestant missionaries, and they came to build schools and hospitals, which they did in many parts of Iran. They were not explicitly trying to convert anyone. They had the idea that they would just set a good example. Um, and an entire generation of Iranians was educated in these wonderful schools that uh, Americans built. The hospitals were all free. They had a high standard of medical care. So by the middle of the 20th century, the contrast between how selfless uh, the Americans in Iran were with the evil, predatory, hostile nature of the British, the French, uh, the Russians, right, and other outside right. powers really gave Iranians, you might even say, an exaggerated, positive view of the United States. Now, these Americans, of course, who were arriving there didn't have anything to do with the U.S. government, but they definitely had the impact of persuading many Iranians that anything that came from the United States must not only be a, a wonderful thing, but it would also be selfless. It, it wouldn't be based on trying to get anything from Iran, which was such a dramatic contrast from all the contacts they had had with the British and the Russians and other outside powers. Okay, actually, there's a couple of things you've said that I want to want to pick up on. Uh, uh, I want to pick up on the the idea or expectation around um, American culture, but but before that, when you talk about about the British, I mean, so by 1953, you're you're making the case the British. It was the British that Iranians saw as the colonial threat to any kind of Iranian national independence, not the U.S. What was the expectation uh, pre Eisenhower, pre 53, pre coup that Iranians would have around the role of the U.S. government then? That 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 the role that the U.S. would play in Iranian geopolitics. To the extent that Iranians were reflecting on that at all, I think they saw the United States as a potential friend, if not even a savior. Uh, to them, of course, they had this view of the United States through these very selfless missionaries uh, as a place that uh, only wanted good for the Iranian people. So I think that might have led them to a little bit of a mistaken view uh, because they confused the benevolence of a couple of generations of Americans who lived in Iran uh, with an attitude of the U.S. government, which actually was not correct. Because at this point, before uh, the United Second World War in particular, the United States really hadn't focused on Iran, hadn't focused on the Middle East. Right. You have to understand that all during the first half of the 20th century, the Middle East was essentially a British and partly French outpost. The United States didn't begin projecting power there until after the Second World War, and that's part of what led to this coup in Iran. You know, there's something that I, I want to get your thoughts on that I don't want to race ahead. I want to sort of ask you, start asking you about Mossadegh. But just before we get there, when we talk about American culture and Iranians, there is kind of a paradox that emerges that I, I suspect you've probably seen in other places that you've covered as a foreign correspondent. You've written books about Latin America and different countries where even though the Americans become the imperial force, the colonial force, the uh, you preside over a coup, even straight through to the, the, the years of the Shah, and even after the revolution of 79 and, and the death to America in the streets, uh, it's my experience that most Iranians, certainly, I mean, anecdotally, my, my friends and relatives, have always loved American culture and American style and, uh, you know, American denims <laughs> and American uh, pop culture and TV shows. And how do you how do we grapple with the paradox of America becoming the enemy in terms of the um, displacing a democratically elected government, but still being the place that Iranians aspire to culturally? 
the phenomenon to which you refer is one of the most heartbreaking aspects of this whole almost century-long conundrum. Iranians are so educated and so Western-oriented. The internet culture is huge there. The gaming culture is huge. The underground party culture is huge. Um, these are people whose culture makes them a much more logical ally for the United States than some of the so-called allies that we have in that part of the world right now. The values that most Iranians hold are actually very close to those that we like to think we hold as Americans, much more so, again, than those of some of our other so-called partners there. So uh, there is this dichotomy. Uh, I must say that I think in, in maybe in recent years, um, resentment and anger at the intensity of American hostility to Iran and the suffering that it has caused to Iranians uh, may have led at least some people to begin to doubt whether there is really something essentially good at the heart of the American soul. Tell us about Mossadegh. Uh, how would you describe him? Who was he? Mohammed Mossadegh was one of the most intriguing figures of uh, the mid-20th century. Uh, he was put on the cover of Time magazine as the man of the year in 1951. And it was true. He was the most important person in the world then. So Mohammed Mossadegh emerged uh, as the leader of Iran uh, in the early 1950s. By that time, he was already elderly. He was already into his 60s. Um, he had had a long career beginning as a teenager when he was a tax collector uh, in his home province. Um, he developed a great reputation for honesty. He went off to study in Europe. He became the first Iranian uh, to get a doctorate in laws from a European university. He was probably the most highly educated Iranian of his generation. Um, he essentially dropped out of politics because dictatorship spread over Iran in the 1920s and 30s under Reza Shah. And it wasn't until democracy returned after the Second World War that the elderly Mossadegh, who had been a figure way back in the 1920s, reemerged from his village and decided I can now resume the political career that uh, was uh, taken away from me a generation ago. He instantly became a hero. He put together something called the National Front, which wasn't really a political party, but a kind of coalition of various unions and civic groups. And the National Front became a dominant force in Iranian politics. Uh, and through the combination of its intense nationalism and the personal popularity of Mossadegh, uh, that led to the National Front government that uh, Mossadegh headed in the early 1950s. I mean, famously, the the coup, um, the intervention of the British and then the Americans, it, it all seems to revolve around the nationalization of oil. This is the move that Mossadegh proceeds and presides over, the nationalization of, of Iranian oil. Um, I have a question that may, it turns, either be naive or too simple, but let me ask it anyway. Um, why hadn't anyone thought of nationalizing the oil until then? I mean, it seems like, why wouldn't we do that? Why did it take till 1953? So the British had seized control of the Iranian oil industry through a series of corrupt deals early in the 20th century. The effect of these agreements was that all of the oil under Iran's soil was the property of a British company, which was owned mainly by the British government. And the refinery was British, and almost all the profits went to Britain, while Iranians were living in some of the worst conditions of anybody in the world. So uh, there was actually discontent over this uh, contract and the uh, inequality of it uh, earlier in, a, in the period before the Second World War, when Reza Shah, the father of the Shah that we remember who was overthrown in 1979, was in power. Uh, he got angry at the uh, grossly unequal uh, 
nature of that treaty. He was involved in long negotiations and correspondence with the British company. And at one time, famously during a cabinet meeting or a meeting of advisors, he called for the folder of all that correspondence to be brought to him, and he threw it into the furnace. And he said he'd had it with negotiating with the British. Now, ultimately, he reached an agreement with the British that resulted in a slightly better deal for Iran but nothing approaching nationalization. So why? Why was he not able to push through a nationalization project way back in the 1930s? It's because the power of Iran was weak and the power of Britain was great. It was the power imbalance that made it impossible for uh, Reza Shah to make this effort. Mossadegh, on the other hand, believed that whether or not the project was ultimately going to work. It was in the absolute interest of Iran to stand up for its dignity and demand that it be allowed to use its great national resource for the development of its own people. And although he was warned that this was something that outside powers, particularly the British and their American friends, would not like, he went ahead anyway. And that's something that Reza Shah couldn't and didn't do. So most of that comes to power in 51, um, and it's August 53 that he gets removed from power. How quickly or how, uh, yeah, I suppose, how soon after he ascended to power was Britain sure that they wanted to do something about him? When Mossadegh came to power, he was already known as a fierce critic of the oil agreement. Uh, but the British had been dealing with uh, rowdy politicians in their colonies and protectorates for generations and thought they knew how to handle them. So there was a series of escalating uh, efforts to dissuade Mossadegh and then to try to push him off the track of nationalization. Uh, it was very, uh, it was actually at the very moment when Mossadegh became prime that he made clear that this was going to be his principal goal. So the way he came to be prime minister had to do with the assassination of a previous prime minister. That meant that the parliament had to choose a new prime minister, probably from one of within its own members, another member of parliament. And there was a debate, and Mossadegh was uh, suddenly selected as the choice of the uh, parliament to be prime minister. And sensing the power that he had and uh, building on the passion that he'd built up as head of the oil committee of the parliament, he got up and said that he would accept the nomination as prime minister, but only on one condition. This would be a great scene if there's ever a movie about this. He apparently reached into his... Uh, jacket pocket dramatically and held up a piece of paper and he said i've got a draft here of a bill that will authorize the nationalization of the oil industry first vote for this and then i will become your prime minister and i will put it into effect so even at the moment that Mossadegh was coming to power he made clear that this was going to be the issue at the center of his administration hmm. By the way, if there ever, ever is a movie version, uh, Ben Kingsley would have to play Mossadegh, since Ben Kingsley usually has to play the brown leader somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the world, the great historical I'm for figure. It. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, um, it's interesting. I, just before I move on, you know, I have heard. I mean, when one uh, is doing a show in the Iranian diaspora, of course, you hear all kinds of uh, um, arguments. Uh, we're nothing but a people who uh, disagree over um, historical interpretations. Some people see, put an asterisk next to Mossadegh because of just the, what you just described in terms of the way he became prime minister, that they take umbrage at him being called popularly elected. Would you see it that way, that he was somehow not a legitimately elected prime minister? I think he was elected along with the traditions that exist in many parliamentary democracies. If the prime minister of Great Britain suddenly dies today, the new prime minister will be chosen by parliament. 
That's exactly what happened in Iran. So would that person be popularly elected? Well, he's not directly elected, but prime ministers are never directly elected in parliamentary democracies. They're always elected by parliament. So uh, I would say he was as democratically elected as um, prime ministers in countries that have parliamentary systems. So he comes to power. The British are not happy. From what I understand, well, from your book, um, Truman, who's president uh, when uh, Mossadegh first becomes prime minister, uh, has a a relatively uh, benign or even friendly uh, idea of of, of, a relationship with Iran and with Mossadegh. Um, Things change when uh, Eisenhower comes to power in 52. How, How and why does the United States get involved in all of this? This is a very complex story, but there are some very clear pieces to it. So we know from Eisenhower's biographers that when he came into power, he didn't have any particular views about Iran or Mossadegh at all. Um, But his closest advisors on foreign policy were the opposite. They not only had passionate views, but they were passionately anti-Mossadegh. And who were those people? So John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State under Eisenhower. And Dulles's brother, Alan Dulles, was the head of the CIA. So those two brothers were the key advisors uh, and executors of foreign policy uh, during the Eisenhower administration. Now, before coming into public office, both of those brothers had worked for the famous Wall Street law firm of Sullivan and Cromwell, which was the principal corporate law firm in the United States. And it was especially involved in uh, overseas operations of its clients. So uh, these people were closely tied to Anglo-Iranian oil company, the British oil firm, uh, partly for, for two reasons. I think there was one more cosmic reason that they believed that uh, allowing big multinational corporations to function freely without interference by uh, the governments of countries that produced resources was absolutely essential to the functioning of the world economy. They saw the world from the Wall Street perch. But in particular, uh, both of them were involved in one of the most important clients of Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, That was something called the Schroeder Bank. Actually, Alan Dulles was on the board of directors of the Schroeder Bank, as well as being a big stockholder. The Schroeder Bank was the financial agent for the Anglo-Iranian oil company, so would be deeply affected by what happened to that company. In addition, the Chase Manhattan Bank and various other American industries were very tied in with Anglo-Iranian. So uh, the Dulles brothers came into power passionately hating Mossadegh for his attacks on the oil industry, which had already become intense. And they're the ones, particularly Foster Dulles, who brought Eisenhower slowly around to the idea uh, that uh, Mossadegh should be overthrown. Now, uh, when you trace the history of the development of the coup through the American government, and you can do this now because many documents have been declassified, you can see that there's only one point where somebody in the Eisenhower administration raises a question or a doubt about whether overthrowing Mossadegh is a good idea. And who is that person but President Eisenhower himself? There's a meeting of the National Security Council where he essentially says, I'm glad we're overthrowing that communist Mossadegh, but I didn't realize that Mossadegh really was a communist, which, which is actually true since Mossadegh was an elderly landowner who despised all socialist and Marxist ideas. And John Foster Dulles had a great answer. He said, I'm paraphrasing now, something like this. It's true Mossadegh uh, is not a communist. However, Mossadegh is old. Mossadegh is sick. Mossadegh could die or be overthrown. Iran has lots of oil. They're on the border with the Soviet Union. It's just too dangerous a situation to be allowed to fester. And with that, Eisenhower went along. 
You know, you know, one of the great things about talking to you uh, about all this is that literally every step of it, you've written a book about. I mean, you've written a book about the Dulles Brothers. You've written a book about the coup itself. You've written a book about the history of intervention by the U.S. And you've written a book about the CIA. And I want to ask you about the CIA because you've talked about the fact that the CIA had never overthrown a government or intervened in this way until Mossadegh. And this is... This is interesting for someone like me who, uh, you know, a kid of the 70s and 80s, I've only ever known the CIA as this sort of interventionist uh, American force. You know, what what was the CIA before this event then? And how did the 53 coup inform what the CIA would become in the decades thereafter? The United States has been overthrowing governments uh, long before it created the CIA. You can go at least as far back as 1909 when we overthrew a government in uh, Nicaragua. But we had a different means of doing it in the whole period up until the Second World War. And that means was very direct. We would land troops and we would make a demand. The president has to quit, otherwise we're going to overrun the place. It, It was simple. But after the Second World War, that became impossible. If we landed troops on some foreign shore, suddenly there was another force. There was the Red Army out there, the Soviet Union. They could land troops. And the next thing you know, some dispute could spiral off into World War III. So to avoid that, uh, the United States came up with a new way to try to intervene in other countries. And that was covert action. We hadn't had to do that before. So the CIA was created in 1947 under the Truman administration. Truman did use it for covert action, but he drew the line at overthrowing governments. At least twice uh, while he was president, uh, proposals were made actually percolating up from Alan Dulles already in the CIA to overthrow the government of Guatemala and to overthrow the government of Iran. And uh, that this deeply frustrated the British as they contemplated the loss of their most valuable foreign asset anywhere in the world. That's why the British were thrilled when Eisenhower came in. Then he selected the Dulles brothers, and that made clear to the British that there was now a real prospect that American policy was going to be reversed and that we would go into Iran and overthrow Mossadegh to the benefit of the British and ourselves. You mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, you, you talked about communism and the communists, and you talked about Eisenhower and Dulles talking about Mossadegh and whether he was communist or he wasn't. The specter of communism was used uh, not just sort of in these geopolitical circles, but, but popularly used to turn opinion about Mossadegh, right? How, how was that done? There's a wonderful episode that illustrates the power of the Cold War narrative, uh, which was probably one of the most uh, intensely and fully developed political narratives of all modern history. So uh, this period that I was just speaking about, when Eisenhower is just arriving into office, he hasn't even been inaugurated yet. So that would be uh, very late 1952, or the first days of 1953. Uh, the British then were very excited that they might now be able to bring the Americans into this plot and, and get rid of Mossadegh. So they sent one of their top uh, Secret Service agents from London uh, to come to Washington to make the case that the Americans should go to Iran and, and overthrow Mossadegh. That agent, uh, Christopher Montague Woodhouse, was quite a flamboyant figure. He had quite a life and later wrote a memoir. Uh, And in that memoir, he devotes a couple of pages to this mission that he had of coming to America to uh, convince the United States government to overthrow Mossadegh. And he writes, and I'm paraphrasing this from memory, but he writes something like this. I was flying over the Atlantic and I was going over the argument that I was going to use to try to get the Americans to take on this project. And I realized that the argument we've been using, it's not a good argument. It's not going to work. The argument was... These Iranians took away our oil company. Please overthrow them so we can have our oil company back. (laughs) Right, right, right. I realized that this was not going to galvanize the Americans into action. And it suddenly dawned on me, I'm not even going to mention the word oil. Knowing the climate in Washington, I decided 
then I would make a different case, which is that Mossadegh was opening the door to communism in Iran. He had the idea that if he used that word and he could persuade uh, the Americans that that was at stake, they would jump in. And he turned out to be right. I mean, was he right, though, or was that did they did they like the pretext or were they actually worried about communism? I mean, really, isn't this ultimately about oil? The two motivations merge so fully that it's hard to tell. So I would say uh, we were well, the Americans could make the case this way. So. We didn't overthrow Mossadegh because of oil. We overthrew him because we feared he would be a threat to the West. How did you determine that he could someday be a threat to the West? Because he nationalized the oil. (laughs) But that's not why we did it. So you can sort of have a kind of syllogism in your mind and say that the strategic motivation and the economic motivation merge so tightly that it just really depends on who's looking at it to determine which one is the real decisive one. On the, on the other hand, it should be said that had Mossadegh not uh, nationalized the oil company, had he reached a deal with the oil company management, he certainly would not have been overthrown. Right. The actual overthrow uh, of Mossadegh and, and his government is... I mean, it's interesting. You you devote your first chapter of all the Shah's men to it. It's kind of ham-fisted. I mean, it features these interesting characters, Kermit Roosevelt, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf, not not the one we know, but the father of the one we know or the one we learned about it from the, the Gulf War, et cetera. Uh, but it, 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 it's, it's clunky. I mean, it's not seamless. How did they actually overthrow Mossadegh? Well, you're right that it, it seemed like a kind of a clumsy operation, but it succeeded, I think, for one key reason, which is that the person on the receiving end, Mossadegh, and his government were not experienced with covert action. As I said, and we talked about earlier, this was the first time the United States ever used covert action to overthrow a government. Now, if you flash forward uh, some decades, these tactics become much more difficult because they've been used repeatedly and the targets of them know how to avoid them. And we tried overthrowing Saddam so many times. We bombed every place he'd ever eaten a falafel. We couldn't find him. With Mossadegh, it was just the opposite. He wouldn't even send out his own police to crush demonstrations, even though these demonstrations were promoted by the CIA because he thought it would be undemocratic to use his police. He didn't realize at, at any time during the crisis that it was all being fomented by people in the basement of the U.S. Embassy who were working for the CIA. So I think the fact that it was so new as a tactic was crucial. So he was a sitting duck. Yes, and very naive. You know, he lived there in Switzerland for years. At one time, he'd even wanted to apply for Swiss citizenship. And I think he came back to Iran with a little bit of a an exaggerated view of democracy and how easily it would fit into the Iranian context. Uh, Maybe it needed a little bit of a harsher hand. For I give you one example. You know, of course, the coup, there was the first coup that failed, and then four days later it finally succeeded. After the first coup failed, uh, Mossadegh's foreign minister, who was a young, radical firebrand, came to him and said, uh, we got to take the people that were leading that coup and take them out and shoot them. And uh, Mossadegh said, under what law would we be able to do that? And Fatimi, the foreign minister, said, we don't need any law. I mean, they they tried to overthrow you and destroy the democracy in this country. And Mossadegh said, no, that's not a law. You know, it's all over now. That's not a legal procedure. uh, And uh, nothing else is going to happen since the coup has failed. It was exactly those guys and their friends that came back four days later, overthrew Mossadegh, and then hung Fatimi, the foreign minister. So he was right that they should have cracked down, but Mossadegh was not a kind of a person to crack down, and the CIA knew that and and took advantage of his naivete. It's a pretty, uh, I've called it clunky, but but it's also um, relatively bloodless. I mean, there's no civil war that happens or anything. There are, however, a few hundred people who die in firefights in the streets of Tehran during the events of the coup. How does that happen? So uh, Kermit Roosevelt, the uh, American CIA 
officer who directed the coup from the basement of the U.S. Embassy, uh, was uh, sort of improvising as he went along. Um, as I mentioned, uh, there was an attempt at a coup that failed, and then uh, Roosevelt received a cable from the CIA telling him, maybe you better get out now that it didn't work, and we're going to have to find a way to live with Mossadegh. But uh, Kermit Roosevelt really thought he, he could still succeed. So he really had, what I thought was a great insight. First of all, he did something that I might also have thought of, which was that he hired a bunch of violent street gangs through one of their leaders, and he he paid them off, and he told them to rampage through the streets of Tehran, uh, break store windows, fire their guns into mosques, and shout, we love Mossadegh and communism. And then he did something that was even smarter that I would probably not have thought of. And that is he hired a second mob to attack the first mob. They were both being paid by the CIA, although neither of them knew that. This was to create the impression that Mossadegh had completely lost control of Iran. And people were running wild in the streets and it was rioting. And that police and military people had to come in. Fortunately... Kermit Roosevelt had also paid off police and military commanders. They then mobilized their units and converged around Mossadegh's house. There was a big firefight there. And uh, finally, um, at the end of the evening, uh, Mossadegh had to flee. And uh, the CIA chosen savior uh, was brought in to make his uh, triumphant uh, appearance on Tehran radio. The CIA savior meaning the Shah. At this time, it was uh, Zahedi, the, uh-huh, uh, yes. the designated prime minister. The Shah had fled the country in panic. Well, I was going to ask you about the Shah because, I mean, this leads to, uh, I mean, the Shah was ostensibly sort of in power at the time, but obviously deeply threatened by Mossadegh and, and after 53 consolidates his own power for the next 26 years. And depending on how you view history, people love him or hate him. But I don't think anybody would uh, quibble with the notion that this was not his finest moment in 1953. Tell us where the Shah was in all of this. After the first coup failed, uh, the Shah panicked, and he flew off to Baghdad and then off to Rome. When he got to Rome, he told people he was going to have to look for work because he was pretty sure he'd never be able to go back to Iran again. Little did he know that Kermit Roosevelt was going to make this second attempt at the coup. It would succeed. Then uh, the Shah came back, um, and in a famous moment, uh, he and Kermit Roosevelt met before Roosevelt came back to Washington. And he offered him a toast and said, uh, I owe my throne to God, my country, and you. He was right, although perhaps not in that order. Um, the Shah then went on to consolidate power uh, with an increasingly repressive rule over the next quarter century, as you point out. Uh, that repression led to the explosion of the late 1970s, what we call the Islamic Revolution. That revolution brought to power this clique of fanatically anti-American mullahs who've spent the last 40 years working intently and sometimes quite violently to undermine Western and American interests all over the world. Uh, That uh, revolution in 1979 also panicked the Soviets who thought they saw extreme Islam penetrating towards their borders. That was one of the things that provoked them to send troops into Afghanistan, which drew the United States into the entire Afghan quagmire. In addition, that 1979 revolution drew the attention of Iran's biggest enemy, next door Saddam Hussein in Iraq. He then invaded Iran. Uh, That led to the 1980 to 1988 Iran-Iraq war. So you could say that A lot of history came out of three or four weeks in the summer of 1953 in Tehran. Well, this is actually where I wanted to go with this. I I, I appreciate the. It's a perfect segue. You know, we've we've titled this 
this uh, episode in particular, the Americans and the 53 coup, and you being a, a, a great person to resource for us on this. But if we, and, you, and you've taken us through the, what happened in 1953, but if we do look at the aftermath, you've written, I want to quote you, if the United States had not sent agents to depose Prime Minister Mossadegh in 1953, Iran would probably have continued along its path toward full democracy. And you suggest, as you kind of almost just did there, that uh, that the, the events of 53 set off a chain of events that wouldn't have existed. I mean, presumably, if, if the coup hadn't happened, this is all the way to 9-11 and the Iraq war. Um, Stephen, are you, are you overstating the import of what happened in 1953? Historians are warned always against the counterfactuals. But since I'm not actually a scholarly historian, I'm able to ignore that uh, taboo. <laughs> um, you know, Iran was the only country in the Muslim Middle East that was prepared to evolve toward democracy in a Western style. I think... Um, the prerequisites are at least two for a country to want to do that. First of all, uh, people in the country have to want to have a particular form of government, like Western democracy. You can't bomb them into doing it. They have to want it. And in Iran, they really had developed a desire for this kind of government over a long period of time. And that's condition number two, time you cannot develop these habits of democratic life very quickly. So, for example, you don't vote for somebody who lives near you or somebody who's related to you or someone who's your own ethnic group. You're supposed to vote for somebody who represents the ideas that you believe in. You have to understand what is a parliament? What is a political party? How do campaigns work? This takes generations. And Iran had had these generations. Iran had its constitutional revolution right after the beginning of the 20th century. There are countries in the Middle East that don't have constitutions even today. So Iran already had half a century of understanding and learning about democracy. Mossadegh led a government that seemed to be leading Iran in that direction. Now, could it have slid back because of various other factors? Sure. And in fact, i tell you what I think might have been the, uh, the key factor in why Iran fell into this whole mess, and it is that they have such a rich resource. You know, we sometimes talk about uh, countries being blessed with resources. This is a big mistake. These resources can be a terrible curse. You know, Turkey is right next door to Iran. Nobody ever invaded Turkey. Why? Because Turkey doesn't have anything worth stealing. But Iran did. And it, that was the real downfall because it had such a, a valuable resource and was so weak politically compared to the predatory powers that consumed that resource. It was vulnerable. You know this story. You we started the interview with uh, talking about the fact that your your book was really the first uh, book dedicated to to the fifty three coup, and that didn't you didn't write that until two thousand and three or publish it until two thousand and three. Um, there were papers that have been released that have secured our knowledge around uh, the the role of the Americans uh, uh, in the coup, uh, uh, the U.S. government, uh, the CIA. Um, but also the way things were seen at these pivotal moments in Iranian history over the last 40, 50 years have been seen in kind of a, sometimes there's been acts of omission, if not commission, in terms of the way things are reported. Right after the Iranian Revolution of 79, when the Iranian students took over the U.S. Embassy and held those hostages for 440 days, uh, they actually called it the Den of Spies because they knew that the 53 coup had actually been plotted from the U.S. compound, from that very building. Yet in the United States, or when I was a kid here in Canada, the media covered the hostage crisis mostly as a, these you know emotional rampaging mobs, which they were. But um, uh, that was pretty much it. Death to America. The fifty-three coup was rarely noted. What what do you make of that? You're absolutely correct. Those uh, hostage takers in Iran were portrayed in the United States as savages. They were nihilists. They were violating every law of God and man, and for no reason other than to create havoc and show hatred. That wasn't true. Uh, but we didn't know that because nobody in the United States knew 
that the United States had ever done anything to Iran that would motivate such anger. Now, uh, in later years, some of those hostage takers wrote their own accounts, their own memoirs. Uh, and there it becomes very clear what they were thinking. I'm thinking of one article in particular where one of the hostage takers wrote something like this. We finally forced the Shah out of the country. So we remembered that we were only 26 years after the same Shah had been thrown out of the country before. What happened last time? The CIA staged a coup and brought him back. Now he's been admitted back to the United States, and we fear history is going to repeat itself. CIA officers working in the basement of the American embassy are going to stage a coup and bring the Shah back. What leads us to fear this? It's because exactly this has already happened once. And we took over that embassy to prevent history from repeating itself. Americans didn't understand this because we didn't even know this history had ever happened. And it shows you how the American perception of U.S.-Iran relations and the Iranian perception of U.S.-Iran relations never coincide. They're like railroad tracks that run side by side. They, they never come together. In the American narrative, the huge decisive event in this entire relationship over a century was the hostage crisis. But for Iranians, the hostage crisis was a relatively minor bump in the road where nobody died and it was embarrassing. But that was just something small compared to the United States destroying our democracy and setting into motion all the processes that led to, among other things, the hostage crisis. So each side takes a different episode as the key moment. And neither side, I think, has really been able to appreciate the pain that it inflicted on the other. This is a deep cause of the continuing hostility between the two countries. There's an interesting role, too, vis-a-vis -vis when we talk about the revolution, which, of course, becomes consolidated, as you put it, by these, these mullahs, uh, by the Islamic formalists, you know, in the in the year or two after the revolution happens, the Khomeinis. Uh, there's an interesting um, asterisk on this whole coup for me that I, I did not know about um, for many years, which is that that the clergy, those same, you know, uh, Islamic formalists, those same mullahs that would, you know, um, be instrumental in overthrowing the Shah and, and consolidating power and leading to this, you know, Islamic Republic for the last 40 years. You know where I'm going with this, right? The clergy were actually on the side of the coup uh, the, of bringing back the Shah in 53. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, the role of the clergy is interesting because uh, at the beginning of Mossadegh's uh, government, the clergy was largely supporting him. The reason was nationalism. They also thought the British were evil and wanted to kick them out of the country. But as time went on, another side of Mossadegh's persona emerged, which is that he was, by Iranian terms, a secularist. And uh, he didn't want to use Sharia law or allow religious influence into government. That made the mullahs more dubious. And then at the very end, Kermit Roosevelt, recognizing this, spread many thousands of dollars through one of the key mullahs. And by the time Mossadegh was about to be overthrown, mullahs were being paid to make speeches in the mosques denouncing Mossadegh uh, as an atheist or a Jew or somebody unfaithful to Islam. So uh, certainly Kermit Roosevelt was able to use the uh, r discontent of some religious militants and with the help of a lot of American tax dollars, turn them into tools in his effort to overthrow Mossadegh. Stephen, in your um, book called The Shah's Men, uh, in, a, in a newer edition, you write a new in a new preface, uh, you talk about the 53 coup as demonstrating the ongoing, to quote you, folly of using violence to try to reshape Iran. Uh, do you really believe that lesson has been learned? No, but it's a lesson that I'd like to preach. Uh, I, I do think uh, Iran can be brought back into the community of nations as a fully respected member, but uh we have to accept that Iranians are going to be able to shape their own destiny. I think that's really uh, at the heart of this problem. The United States doesn't like to have such a big country in the heart of a, an area that we've always considered vital, the Middle East, which strongly opposes 
U.S. policies. That, that's really at the center of the problem. As a result of Iran's recalcitrance, uh, Iran has become the most sanctioned country in the history of the world. And the United States has devastated the standard of living in that country, all trying to force it to make political change. Actually, this just turns the regime more inward. It makes it more militant, more resistant to change. And it doesn't produce the political result that we'd like, as we should be realizing after 40 years of sanctioning. So I don't think the policy of trying to beat Iran has produced anything. It's not going to because Iranians have a tremendously strong sense of themselves as individuals and as a nation. Don't forget this country has existed 10 times longer than the United States. And Iranians are acutely aware of this. So a better um, approach would be to take the approach that uh, we took with Germany after the end of the Second World War. The rest of the uh, world and Europe were, were full of anti-Germany emotions for obvious reasons. But it was understood that if you keep pushing Germany away, you're only going to have more best ways to try to build a security architecture in Europe in which Germany has a firm place. You've got to integrate Germany into Europe. That's what we have to do with Iran. We need to find a security architecture for the Middle East in which all countries, including those that dissent from American policy, have a role commensurate with their size and influence. Uh, so that means a security architecture that includes Iran. Now, with the United States slowly trying to move away from the Middle East, happen because up until now the u.s thumb on the scales has decisively prevented uh, iranian uh, negotiations with its neighbors uh, but still the united states has maintained this policy of fierce confrontation with iran it hasn't produced a result and it's based on a mistaken belief that only Iran has been responsible for the problems between our two countries that belief is based largely on our ignorance of what happened in 1953 when we not only overthrew one leader, Mossadegh, but we destroyed Iran's progress toward what might have been a thriving democracy. But you know, that, that reflex for intervention um, not just not just among uh, American hawks, fr frankly, but even some members of the Iranian diaspora, you know, uh, calling for American intervention. That reflex for intervention surely gets fueled by the ongoing ruthlessness of the current Iranian regime, right? It's certainly true that the harshness of the government in Iran fuels some people to want to try to change it. But that regime is very deeply rooted. Those mullahs don't have anywhere to go. <laughs> that system isn't going to collapse on itself. It's very, it's very strong. The only way that you're going to get change in Iran is going to be gradually. And let me tell you something I've really noticed about Iranians, particularly those that, that live in their homeland, and it's this. The 1979 revolution taught them a profound lesson. When you violently overthrow a government because you think things can only get better, <laughs> right. that's a mistake. So Iranians probably know better than anyone in the world that when you think we don't know what's coming, but it's got to be better than what we have now, you could be wrong. And so uh, the Iranians are, I think, quite eager for change, but the idea that it would be a radical destruction of the system and its replacement with something totally different is scary to Iranians because they saw the catastrophe that led to that stemmed from the last time they did that. It's been such a great pleasure to talk to you. A final question, if you will, in, in a in a strange way, does the coup of 1953? I mean. You know, on the face of it, this event that happens that should be history and should be something that we uh, just talk about or read about in history books. Does the coup of 53 actually grow in importance as we get further removed from it? I hope not. I would like to see uh, both the memory of the hostage crisis and the memory of the 53 coup be subsumed by a look at the future. The recriminations go on forever and ever. I think it's important that both sides understand that they've been great pain on each other and try to move forward. Let's not try to relitigate all of this again. I think it's pretty clear 
what happened in 1953 if you want to face it. And it's pretty clear what happened in 1979. Let's try to put that behind us, understand that it happened, but use it as a basis for future reconciliation, not as a basis for eternal hostility. It's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. I look forward to more conversations. Okay, great to be with you. Thanks. Stephen Kinzer, an author, academic, and an award-winning foreign correspondent. His book about today's subject is entitled All the Shah's Men, an American Coup and the Roots of Middle East Terror. Stephen Kinzer joined me from Boston, Massachusetts today. And this is Full Time for the Rook series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 2. Please check out our regular editions of Rook. We post them on Mondays and all things related at rookmedia.com. That's our website, rookmedia.com, where you can link to all things, including our previous episodes, our guests, our funnies, our videos, etc. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Susan, Ponta, Keon, Parisa, Roham, Mertod, Sean, Reza, and Shia. Thank you to all of you out there supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe on any of our platforms if you've not done so already. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. Mizun Bashin. <laughs>